Well, as you are taking a seat, if you would turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, tonight we are on Dealing with Spiritual Gifts, Part 7. So, uh, Daniel Hamilton, if you would hit that handy little button that switches it over to the Apple TV, I would be most appreciative. Thank you, sir. Um, Each time that I've taught, I hope you don't mind, but I have kind of rewound a little bit, rewinded, which one's right? Okay, either one. And uh, I've looked at what we have studied the time before and sometimes beyond. Now I do that because there's sometimes I'm like, ooh, I forgot to say this. All right, and so I want to cover it. But also there are times that you missed on a Sunday or you missed on a Wednesday, uh, keeping in mind that we view our youth group as both Sunday and Wednesday. So we would love for you to come regularly on Sunday and Wednesday our lessons kind of continue on. But we also know that there are some guests uh, that might have another church, but you come on Wednesday night. And so we don't want you to be totally oblivious to where we are in the context. We normally don't spend months at a time talking about spiritual gifts and uh, tongues and cessationism and all that stuff. That is just where the passage has taken us. Uh, Our philosophy is we pick books of the Bible and we teach through books of the Bible. It's it's a novel idea. We start in chapter 1, verse 1. And we go all the way until we're done. And sometimes it doesn't take us very long. And sometimes we start in August and we're still in the same book in February. Uh, But Lord willing, we will finish 1 Corinthians in March and then we will move on to Philippians. So I hope that you have enjoyed the study. I noticed a lot of you took the Case for Cessationism books last time. I hope you've read them. There's still one over there. Uh, Remember, if you borrow something from the book cart, you're welcome to take it and read it. We just ask that at some point you bring it back or the Kraken will come for you, all right? When it comes to part five, we're not going to go all the way back. We're going to go back to part five. That starts in chapter 14. Remember chapter 13? We were talking about love and how love is the greatest. And when you're exercising spiritual gifts or when you're seeing someone else use spiritual gifts, you want to highlight love and not be jealous of other people or not be pride prideful or haughty. And in chapter 14, we get two commands, the reminder to pursue love. Not just out of love, I'm supposed to love people. Pursue. Uh, Some of you have those little yippee dogs that when you open up the door, they're gone, right? You pursue them. Unless you're like, this is a great time to get rid of the yippee dog. And you say, sorry, buddy. Okay. You run after them. We want to run after love. That's what we need to do. But then he goes on and he says, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. You should really, there's nothing wrong with spiritual gifts. Paul doesn't want him to think that way, okay? When you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are now a Christian. You are a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. And the Holy Spirit indwells you now, which is amazing, isn't it? And he gives you gifts to use for the edification of the body of Christ and for the furtherance of the gospel. So spiritual gifts are a good thing. But at Corinth, they were misusing them. And they were jealous about the gifts that other people had. Or they were going, ha ha, I got this gift. You don't have this gift. And he says, look, it's nothing against the gifts. You should pursue them, 
But I want you to prioritize here prophecy, which we looked at what that is. Pursue the direct revelation from God and teach that to one another. Teach that to one another. But why is it that you should do that? Well, he gives two reasons for prophecy's superiority. Prophecy was a gift that edified, that built up. We don't really say the word edify a lot, but it builds up. It encourages. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Now, this idea in verse 2, he's actually condemning the church of uh, first, uh, in Corinth because they were not really using the real gift of tongues the way it should be used. They were using this jibber-jabber ecstatic speech. And he is kind of, he's pointing out to them that, look, what you're doing doesn't really accomplish anything. If someone says they speak in a tongue, but no one knows what it is, I mean, what, what's the point? No one learned anything. No one wasn't taught anything. You weren't built up. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. The one who takes the revealed word of God and then declares it to others, good things happen. Good things happen. Verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But one who prophesies edifies the church. Now what it's pointing out is the tongue that they were utilizing, it was just a, a false gift. And it wasn't really building anyone up except the person doing it. They felt better about themselves. But the gift of prophecy, on the other hand, taught truth. Prophecy edifies, but their tongue does not. He says in verse 5, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues. And you're like, well, it's weird. You just told us in the previous chapters that not everybody gets that gift. Well, he's saying, I, I don't have anything against the gift. The gift, what it really is, is, is a good gift, but it's not the gift that you're displaying. He says, but even more, I wish that you would prophesy, and greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so the church may receive edifying. The, the gift of tongues was to spread the gospel to people that you don't know the same language of. It wasn't necessarily utilized on the regular in the church. But if someone did use that gift, you need someone who actually knows what they're saying so that they can interpret it, right? Their tongue, what they're doing, does not. Verse 7, yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, and producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So they're out in the battleground. They're ready to fight. And they hear this. They're like, what is that? Did you burp? I mean, what's happening here? I don't understand. That doesn't help anything. But if you hear a real bugle, and I can't do a bugle. Maybe Evan can do a bugle. Maybe another day for another time. Then they go, boom, war time. Let's go. In the same way, if someone's up in front and they're saying something that's gibberish or that no one understands, how can they respond to it? How can it impact them? Verse 9, So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of, here we go, here's our word for tongues, languages in the world. And no kind is without meaning. And I have, I was talking about this with the middle school leaders. There's really two sets of youth 
there are those of you that are like, wow, this, ah, man, my, my co-op, uh, my private school, this is, uh, yeah, this is a big deal. Like, this comes up all the time. And then there's others that are like, what in the world are you talking about? I go to Countryside, and I don't go to other churches, so I haven't really experienced this, all right? In our society, there is what we would call the charismatic movement, where a number of churches still teach that the sign gifts, prophecy, tongues, healing, those are still being used, where we believe that they were special gifts given during the time of the apostles and the beginning of the church to get people's attention and to verify their message. But then those gifts are no longer given on the regular. They're not given on the regular here. And with this gift of tongues, most of the times that it's used, it is not a language. It's not a language. But here it says it has to be a language. Verse 11, if then I... If I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Our rule that, regula that regulates is found in chapter 12, verse 7, where spiritual gifts are used for the common good. They're used for the building up of the body. And if they don't build up the body, then they're not being used correctly or therefore the proclamation of the gospel. Verse 13, therefore let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. And that brings us to Craig's lesson, which was part six. And I don't know if he called it part six, but I'm going to call it part six. And I have his outline that he used. And in his introduction, he pointed out that the gift of tongues is only mentioned a few times in the New Testament. Can someone Tell me one of the books that it's mentioned in. Acts. The book of Acts. Okay, can you give me the other book that it's mentioned in? Okay, Mark, that's interesting. We'll go to Mark in just a second. What's the other book that it's really mentioned in? Yes, first, you guys are so smart, you're so good. Okay, that's it, okay? That, that's the, the knowledge and the data that we have for the most part. First Corinthians and Acts is what we're looking at. Acts 2 is the greatest example of what the gift of tongues really is. And we won't walk through it because we did last time that I taught. Day of Pentecost, they received the Holy Spirit. There are all these people from all these different lands and the Holy Spirit allowed them to speak in different languages. And people are like, whoa, I can hear this guy in my language. This is amazing. Okay, it wasn't a made up language, it was real. But you also see it in Acts 10. So I, I want you to go to Acts 10, 44. And uh, someone that knows how to use the AC thing, if you would just bump it up a tick, I think that would be delightful. Edwin, or, do you think you can handle it? Yeah, we're all going to die. He's got the bugle going back there. Maybe just, just bump it up one, bump it up one. Acts 10, 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, which he's proclaiming the gospel, right? The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. So that meant that they believed in Christ, they're believers. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. So this is an amazing event. Some believe that only Jews will be saved. 
And so God does something that irrevocably displays that no, the Gentiles also receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 46, they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. This was a special event. This is not normative. Every time someone becomes saved, they don't immediately start speaking in tongues. This was to show that the Gentiles also could receive the Holy Spirit. Let's go to Acts 19. Look at verse 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So here we are talking about the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. They were in all about 12 men. And so this is a special time. It is, if you look at verse 1, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the water of repentance, telling the people to believe in him uh, who was coming after him, that is Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he laid his hands on him, the Holy Spirit came on him, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Again, this is not a normative thing. This is a special event to signify something. And those are the instances we have. Now, did, did Craig go to the book of Mark? I would like for you to go to Mark 16. Okay, Mark 16. And by the way, my lesson is through like, I think verse 40. But I get today and I get Sunday. So I actually get to like, remember when I say we could turn here, but we don't have enough time. All right. Well, we have enough time. So we're going to actually turn there. Don't let me lose you with this, okay? We believe that the Word of God is true, that it is inerrant, that it is without error. Your Bible is accurate. Your Bible is truthful. But when you get to Mark 16, if you've never looked at this before, if you get there, okay, it says in, let's go to verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and, and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs, all right, signs means attesting miracles, will accompany those who have believed in my name. This is where it gets confusing. He's saying, everyone who believes this is going to happen. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord was with them and confirmed the word, word by the signs that follow. What do, we, what do we do with that? Doesn't that sound like all believers can pick up snakes 
and drink poison and heal and speak in tongues. What do we need to know about the end of Mark? Look at verse 9. See if you got any footnotes around in there. See if you got any footnotes. The people who took the Greek and translated into English and packaged the Bible for you gave us a clue, gave us an understanding. Does anyone have anything next to verse 9? Yeah, it says it's not in the original manuscripts, okay? So what does that mean? The original manuscripts does not include verses 9 through 20. So I can say with confidence that verses 9 through 20 are not part of the Bible. They are not part of the book of Mark, okay? The manuscripts were found later, and they were copies and copies and copies, and they are all the same. But this was not in those manuscripts. So someone later on added this part of it. And you're like, are you saying the Bible's not true? No, I'm saying the Bible's true. What did your Bible tell you? It has a note and it tells you that that wasn't in the original. You also have uh, the woman caught in adultery. We won't go there. That's another one that your Bible notes that. The, The woman caught in adultery, it very well could be a true story. But it wasn't found in the original manuscript. So maybe this is someone trying to add something to be helpful or something. But this part isn't actually the book of Mark. But those who don't understand that will go to those verses and say, Look, how come you're not handling snakes? You know how many people have died from handling snakes because they believed that this was true? Or drinking poison? Hmm, interesting. Study. Be students. Paul's purpose, as Craig pointed out in 1 Corinthians, he is correcting and he is restricting the use of tongues. In Christianity today, people will go to the book of 1 Corinthians and say, look, look what they did in the church. Shouldn't we do that? Okay, well, what else did they do in Corinth? They sued each other. Should we do that? You had a dude sleeping with a stepmom. No. We had divisions. We had bickering. We had, you know, disputes about marriage. Corinth isn't the church that we should model ourselves after. Their church service was bedlam. It was chaotic. You have a word? Come on up. You got a word? Come on up. Well, those didn't match. Which one is true? Hey, you got something? Come on. You got a special music? Let's go, everybody. Two lessons at the same time? All right. God is a God of order. God is a God of precision. And so what's happening here is there is a misuse of the gift of tongues and Paul is seeking to correct that. Correct that. Now we're going to go a little faster. He mentioned this, no interpreter, no tongue. No interpreter, no tongue. Let's go back to the book of 1 Corinthians. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Okay, okay. Say we got a church service and we're giving him an opportunity for someone to come on up and speak in a tongue. Well, he better be able to tell us what he just said. Or else what does it, what does it do? What does it benefit us? No tongue or no interpreter, no tongue. Secondly, the mind is critically important. For if I pray in a tongue... 
My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Look, if I speak in a language that I don't know, and I'm praying to God, because people will say, uh, it's my prayer language. Maybe you've heard that, maybe you haven't. I speak in tongues in my prayer language. That's, that's what the pagans would do, people. You don't know what you're saying. You don't know what you're saying. The mind is critically important. Verse 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. The answer is that there is no place for mindless ecstatic prayer. Praying and singing with the spirit must be accompanied by praying and singing with the mind also. It is obvious that edification cannot exist apart from the mind. Spirituality involves more than the mind, but it never excludes the mind. In verse 16, ask the question, what are you agreeing with? Verse 16, otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen at the end of your thanksgiving? Says he does not know what you're saying. So imagine if someone gets up and they speak of the speaky, and you go, amen. Well, what does amen mean? It means the prayer's over. No, what does, what does amen really mean? Gresham, let it be so. Maybe he just prayed that you would give him all your money. Let it be so, right? You don't know what he said, so you can't confirm that. You can't say, you can't say that. And verse 17 points out that the body is not edified. For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edifying. It's not edifying. He goes on to say that Paul is the authority. I thank God. I speak, and I think he used some illustration about pizza and chicken nuggets or something like that, which Craig and I have been in ministry for a long time together, and he knows me. He knows me well. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. So Paul, Paul spoke in tongues. So he's the authority. But do you know how Paul or why Paul needed to speak in tongues? What was Paul known to do? Travel. All over the place. All over the place. To lands where he did not know the language of the people that he was traveling to. So that's why he needed to speak in tongues. So that he could communicate with them. Paul clarifies the goal in verse 19. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind. And you're like, ooh, that would be a short sermon. Can we go back to that? No, I'm not Paul. So that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. The gift of languages had a proper place for a prescribed time as a miraculous confirming sign to unbelievers with an accompanying purpose of edification through interpretation. Paul apparently knew that the gift of tongues would cease in a few years. He was not giving instructions for governing the use of the church, uh, tongues in the church today. He was not giving instruction to the Corinthians because he was speaking of counterfeit tongues, uh, which were, sorry, he was not even giving such instruction to the Corinthians. Because he was speaking of counterfeit tongues, which were based in self-centered emotionalism and did not originate with the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur says that he was giving them as well as Christians of all ages, warning against using self-serving, worldly, carnal, ineffective, and God-dishonoring substitutes 
For the true spiritual gifts, God has ordained to be ministered in the power and the fruit of the Spirit and the blessing and edification of His church. Now, for some of you, like I mentioned, you've never heard tongues, you've never thought about tongues, but we can do things that promote a false religiosity. Can we not serve to make ourselves look better? Can we not sign up for VBS? Oh, I want to minister to those poor kids. Give me the dodgeball. And not even care about them? Can we not do religious things like sign up for Awana, but not even care about those that you're supposed to love? Can we even sit in the worship service and the words come out of our mouth, but we don't even tune them to our heart to offer up to God? Yeah. So this isn't just a a tongue-bashing type of thing. We all struggle with this false religiosity. We want to put on the shiny, happy face. We know we talk about this. You can be in a heated debate with your parents, but the moment you drive into the church parking lot, and magically, you're all best friends and you love each other. Kisses. You act like everything's great right here and hunky-dory, and you even take multicolored notes, some of you people. But then you walk away and you don't really care about any of it. And that's what... That's what Paul is speaking out against. He's speaking out against that. Now, why the review? Because context is always key. It's always key. When you get to verse 20, you get the implications from this. He says in verse 20, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. So it took him this long to get to this point where it's like, Boom. I need to take this and apply it. I need to think through it. Do not think childishly. Do not. There are times that thinking childishly is a good thing. That's like when Jesus in Matthew 18 was talking about having a a childlike faith, a, a childlike innocence. That's a good thing. But... It's bad when it's in your thinking. It's bad when it's in your thinking, okay? So my, my kids are on a, a Ninja Turtle kick. And so we were at uh, Kim's parents. And I said, okay, you've got to watch the real Ninja Turtles. Not the after-school cartoon, which was amazing, okay? But I'm like, the movies. You go with the movies, and uh, you should read up on those movies. It's pretty interesting, the things that they did and what they had to p- pull off and stuff like that, okay? Jim Henson, the Muppet guy, was a big part of getting those to work out and all of those things, okay? But in the, the second one, which is called the Secret of the Ooze, all right, there you go, all right? The Shredder guy wanted to create his own kind of mutants, so he uses the ooze, and is it uh, Razor and Toka or something like that? And he uses the ooze on like uh, this tortoise and some weird dog or something. And they come up, and they're huge, and they're strong. But they're idiots. And he's like, why? Why are they so dumb? He goes, well, they were just born. They were infants in the way they thought, so they could crush and smash and do all this stuff, but they were infants in their thought process. You, I know you're young, but don't think childishly. Don't think childishly. A child thinks like 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. They thought 
that if they taught with the tongues of men and of angels, that that was going to be a beautiful noise. They thought that if they had some special gift that was more important than someone else, that it made them more important. They thought that if they did religious things like giving all their money away, that that was going to earn their way to heaven or if that was going to put them in greater standing with God. But instead, the greater way is love. The greater way is love. So do not be childish. Do not think childish, but do be not evil infants. That's not, do not be evil infants. Be innocent of evil. Be innocent of evil. Yet in evil, be infants. Evil means malice, ill will, wickedness, trouble. And that is not what we are to be, all right? Innocent torts, an infant in, all right? You don't want to be a grown-up really. You know why old people are really good at being like mean and nasty and bitter? They've been practicing it for 70 years. You got to get good at something by then, right? But they excuse it and say they're old people. But when it comes to evil, it, it should be so foreign to you that it's as if you're an infant in it. But instead, do be mature in your thinking. Be complete in your thinking. Be grown up in your thought processes. Go to the Word of God and say, what does the Word say? And read the Word and memorize the Word and counsel with the Word of God. Mature means to be brought to its end, to be finished. Wanting nothing necessary to completeness. Sometimes it's, it's used as perfect. We have been memorizing the book of James, right? And if you lacks wisdom, what are you supposed to do? I'm supposed to ask God. And God gives wisdom and God makes me mature in those things. So in all of this context of spiritual gifts, he stops for a moment and he says, look, don't get lost in all of this. Because we have a lot of academic arguments, right? A lot of ac academic teaching points that we're holding on to. You should be so far away from evil. What you watch, what you think, what you listen to, what you say, what you do, that it's like you're an infant in it. And you can no longer be a child in the way you approach things. You need to be grown up. You need to be mature. And those are some of the implications that we can take away. How do we tend to be childish in our thinking? Well, think about God's sovereignty. Think about God's sovereignty. What does it mean that God is sovereign? He is in control of all things. Okay. Do you believe that God is in control of all things? As he is orchestrating or ordain, ordaining the events of our life. And I think most of you go, yeah, yeah, rock on. I believe that. Okay, good. But when something happens to you that you don't like, do you still believe that God is sovereign? Shouldn't you trust him? Shouldn't you say, wow, I'm so glad that God is in control because I have no idea what I'm doing. We can be childish in those things, or we can be ungrateful. Why didn't God give me this, or why don't I have that, or why didn't I get this opportunity, or I, I can be jealous. What about in worship? In worship, we can be childish because it's more about friends, it's more about games, it's more about being funny and stuff like that. We're not really listening and engaging. We're goofing off. You need to be mature in those things. 
What about in everyday life, the pursuits? What are your pursuits? What do you want to do? What do you want to be great at? It's okay to want to be, you know, uh, to be the valedictorian. That, that's a fine pursuit. It's not for me, but, you know, maybe that floats your boat or something like that. Maybe you want to be first chair violinist or something like that. Maybe you want to be a football star, okay? Football star, maybe? All right, maybe, maybe not. Maybe you want to work and, and earn a living. Those are fine pursuits. But in that, the most important things is the gospel. It's church. So what does your life look like? What does your day look like? Oh, I was so busy I couldn't read the Bible today. Really? You were. Well, I was so busy doing the things that I wanted to do. My pursuits are my friends. I love my friends and I spend time with my friends and I play video games with my friends. I hang out with my friends. Do your friends not have Bibles either? All right. So your pursuits, vanity, popularity, self-centeredness. We, we old people laugh because we know what it was like in high school and what you looked like was so important and what you dressed like was so important. And then one day you get all old and you all look the same and it doesn't really matter anymore. And you're like, ha, ha, ha. And then you get the, the jock athlete who is like elevated in high school and he's like a big old fat dude and you know, all that stuff. Time is fleeting. It's not really as important as you thought it was. How are we striving to be innocent of evil? How are you striving to be innocent of evil? Do you guard what you watch? Do you guard what you want? Sin, sin's always been around. The same temptation cycle over and over again. But the unique thing to your generation is you can access it right in your pocket anytime you want. Even the hip, trendy thing can lead you down a terrible rabbit hole of destruction. The images that it puts in your mind and the, the false ideology that's there. It's more prevalent to you. There's times you got to delete that app. Or you got to ask your mom and dad for help. Or you got to talk about it with a friend. You got to make some tough choices. Are you striving to be innocent of evil or are you playing in it? Are you dabbling it? You know, Rocky used to use that illustration that if you were going up a winding mountain road, would you say, how close can I get to the edge before I go over? Me, I just wouldn't go up the mountain road because I'm so scared I'd go over. Nah, man, you get as far away from the edge as you could. Well, in, in what you're doing, in your pursuits, in your relationships, are you pushing the envelope and then you topple over? Be innocent of evil. How are you actively pursuing maturity in your thinking? How are you doing that? Well, that formula is pretty simple, right? The essentials. Study the Word of God. Pray. Fellowship. Serve. Share the gospel. All of those things strengthen us. All of those things strengthen our mind. You know, read Christian authors. Listen to Christian music. Seek wise counsel. Actively pursue maturity in your thinking. Our society expect so little of you. Look, as long as you don't get pregnant or you don't get drunk and you make it out of high school, you must be doing something right. The expectation is so low. Guys, you can do so much more for the glory of God. You can make such an incredible impact. The people that you're hanging out with are impressionable and young and more open to things. You can have such a great witness there to do that. Getting older doesn't necessarily be, mean more mature. How can a young man keep his way pure? 
by keeping it according to your word. Your word I have treasured in my heart so that I may not sin against thee. And then you get to Psalm 107, or 97 through 105 that talks about I have more understanding than the aged because I love your word, because I keep your precepts. I know more than my teachers, for your law is ever before me. It's ever before me. Are you memorizing, James? Are you giving it a try? Trying to pace you. One verse a week. Guys, James 1 is foundational to putting off temptation, to understanding trials. It is huge. And that's info you should have in your back pocket at any time. At any time. Now, I'm not going to go on too much longer. We're still in, in part 7 here. That's just a, a little glimpse into it. But we're going to talk about tongues in the Old Testament. And so I'll preview that just for a second. It says, in the law, in verse 21, it is written. And how do we know that it's referring to the Old Testament? What does your Bible give you that helps? It's in all caps. I saw some of you mouthing that. Where is this written? Any way you could possibly know where this is written? Does anyone else think that Edwin does a bad job of making it not cold in here? We still love you, Edwin. You tried. I bet Edwin made it colder. No, you're okay. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. You guys are fine, except Lakey over there. She's about to shiver and die. All right. How do you know, how do you, how do you know where it is? It, it's in the footnotes. There's a little A in the side or something like that. I don't know what Bible you people are using, but it, it helps you. In the law, it is written... Well, where in the law? This is Isaiah 28. And what does Paul focus on? By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And what's the lesson to be learned there? The Old Testament, remember Isaiah is about salvation. It told us that the gift of tongues would be given. And that would be a sign that the Messiah had come. The Messiah had come. And tongues were used at times for condemnation or confirmation. And it's so appropriate. It says, even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So, Lord willing, on Sunday we will finish this up. But we're going to go back to Isaiah. And we're going to look at how all of this wasn't a surprise. This was part of God's sovereign plan. All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and for your mercy. What a joy it is to sit here with uh, so many young men and so women with their, their, their Bibles open and they're flipping around and reading passages. And if they forget anything else, I pray that they would remember that your word is true, your word is accurate. And if we want wisdom, if we want understanding, we've got to go to your word. And we should value we should value what you value and do what you ask us to because you are a good and great God. I pray that we would think through things in our life that are pushing us towards evil and we would eradicate those, that we would walk away, that we would delete, that we would break, that we would get rid of those types of things and that we would continue to strive to be mature in our thinking, knowing that our life is about glorifying you, enjoying you, furthering your kingdom as your people. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.